Hello and welcome to We're Watching What? Or in the case of today, we're interviewing who? I'm your host Dana, or the DHK as I'm known, and very excited to welcome this special guest because it is our 100th episode. Thank you to everyone who has been listening. Special guest today is Gary Witta. Gary is a screenwriter, he's an author, he used to be the editor-in-chief of PC Gamer Magazine. You may know him as the screenwriter of The Book of Eli. He was the co-writer on Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. He also co-wrote After Earth, which is that Will Smith sci-fi adventure movie. He's worked on the Walking Dead games. He has a novel called Abomination Out. And he also was the host of Animal Talking, which was the Animal Crossing talk show in 2020. If you are listening to this at a later year or point in time, look it up. It's wild. And we will actually talk a lot about how that came to be and just sort of general film industry stuff and writing. And it's a great conversation. So without further ado, here's we're interviewing who? This is the 100th episode. This is the 100th episode. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm very special. It's yeah, so... I know. I literally was like, I, I'm going to, I'm going to call it. I'm going to call in the favor. I'm going to ask. All right. <laughs> I'm going to do All it. Right. <laughs> Have you been? You know, good as, as well. I've gotten used to saying as well as can be expected. You know, right. we all we, we we all know what we've all been through. Yeah. Uh, the good news is, it does really start to feel a little bit like the light is at the end of the tunnel. You know, yeah. we had we had we had friends over the other day for the first time in over a year, like oh, unmasked shit. indoors. Yeah, everyone's vaccinated. Shook shook someone's hand the other day for the first time in fifteen months, which felt really odd. Like a stranger or someone you knew? No, a, fr- no, a friend. That okay, I, I met okay. a friend for a coffee that I hadn't seen in a long time, and. He, he put his hand out to shake it. I thought, yeah, I guess so. Like, that's the thing that we can start doing again. And it's it's a, it's going to be a weird transitional period back in terms of what used to feel normal yeah. now feels strange. And it's going to take a while to get back to it feeling normal again. I, there are some things that I'm like, shaking somebody's hand who you know is one thing. But the idea of touching another human being's hand for someone you don't know is something I'm totally willing to do away with. It's it, it's interesting. I didn't feel like when I shook their hand, I wasn't like, oh, thank God, back to shaking hands. Like, yeah. you know, who cares? Right. And I think for a lot of people who might be socially anxious or awkward, who don't necessarily love that kind of contact, it's probably been a, a, been a boon for them, you know, right. because they've got the best reason in the world to not, you know, have to, you know, get have allow anyone into their space or whatever. But I do think, I think it was my wife that was talking about this the other day or someone I was talking to made the point that, you know, we've all said this a million times, but there obviously are certain things that won't go back to the way they were that will be right. forever altered in one way or another. You know, people, more people will work from home now. You know, we'll do more, you know, more people are doing Zooms and things and realizing yeah. that you don't need to physically be in the same space as someone else. I also think you're going to see more people just like in, in you know, uh, in Asia where people just walk around with masks all the time because they went through SARS the first time yeah. and just kept wearing them and now just wear them as a matter of course. I think you'll see that here as well. I think you'll see people just continue wearing masks just because they don't want to get the flu, you know, yep. or whatever it might be this year or next. I hope so. But then at the same time, like, not, we don't need to go into the politics and like political side of it. But like, you know, I, I got screamed out on a plane recently. Like I finally traveled for the first time and people yeah. just went off on me for being like, hey, could you please put your mask back on? after an extensive amount of them not wearing it, you know, past the drinking eating phase. I was just right. like, and they just immediately, they were ready to fight. And I was like, what? I know it's what like, it's, it's, like- it's, it, it, it's a mess. And I, I, I don't want to get into that side of it yeah. either. We all know, we all know where the fault yep. lines are, Yep. but yeah, it's like, I, it's funny. My wife and I are a, a, not a disconnect, but we're not exactly on, you know, like a, a little bit, a little bit differentiated in that. She's still very cautious about, wearing a mask everywhere just because, you know, at this point it's more about making other people feel comfortable for those that sure. might still need it. But like, I, I now won't wear mine unless I really am in a place where I feel like for the benefit of others, mm-hmm. they, they're just happier to see me wearing it. But I, feel, I honestly feel like once you're vaccinated, 
what do you need the mask for? Other again, other than just kind of you know for other people's you know peace of mind or whatever. So you know, I, I I'm not doing it as much as I used to. I hate wearing them as a glasses wearer. It's a because they keep fogging up and i've tried the sprays and the wipes and everything else and they don't work and so that that's been i've tried like a dozen different marks trying to find something that you know is comfortable to wear but like i hate it like when i'm in you know when when, when my wife and i go to target or whatever to do our shopping we still wear masks inside yeah in the in the store but like i i kind of want to just get my shop like you on a, on a previous target trip i might just happily kind of like walk around the aisles for an hour or more just like poking around looking at stuff right now i just want to get in and out you're on a mission because right? as soon as i'm like, out yeah, i can take yeah. the mask back off yeah. you know it's yeah. it's a thing it's wild and then have I guess you been to the have you been back to the movies yet no have you no what do you think your first movie back is gonna be i mean it's hard to say because of you know everything yeah we can't we can't go so the one thing that's really kind of holding us back is you know our daughter who's almost nine young, years old right? still yeah. can't get vaccinated until they open once they open up that tier, mm-hmm. I think it'll be you know, and she's vaccinated. Well, I think everyone will feel much more comfortable. But um, my wife and I actually talked about when my kid, my kid's out of school now, but when she was still in school, we talked about sneaking off and going going to see a matinee when it's you know, when the, I, I that's what I like to do. My favorite time to go to the movies is like the first show in the morning, the ten a.m. show, yeah, when the auditorium is basically empty, yeah. There's like maybe like a couple of people up there, and there's someone over there, but there's right. like maybe eight people in the whole theater. And you can kind of pick your seat and put your feet up and feel like you've got the whole place to yourself. That's why yeah. I like to see movies anyway. And these days, you know, you feel more safe doing that as well because you're not like packed in. But it's hard to say. I don't know if, you know, you know, actually they're opening a big new theater. It's been in construction all through the pandemic right near me here at the Stonestown oh. Mall. It's like a oh, big- Oh, I saw um, a preview. It's like, there's like a, like almost like a 360 room or something like it's a that. Re- it, it. So it's a regal and I'm not too familiar with them, but they have, they're have they going to have whatever their version of the ex- extreme cinema, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever their IMAX or Super Dolby experiences or whatever. And I think that's actually going to be opening up right on time for people to start feeling comfortable about going back. I mean, people are right. going back, right? I would, I mean, I would go to like, I mean, I, think my, my, I would go to the movies. I, it just hasn't really come up yet. Mm-hmm. In terms of what might be the first, like what, I don't, it's weird. I don't like going to the movies unless it's something I really want to see on a big screen. Like right. every, anything else, I'm perfectly happy. I've got a big TV at home. I'm happy to just watch whatever. And I know something like, like, like a Bond, like when the new Bond, when the Bond movie comes out, so like, there are certain things that you're never going to be satisfied to just like wait for home video. You want right. to, there are certain movies that just, you know, dictate, yeah, you want to see this one on the big screen. Yeah. Most other, th- and like, I think com- comedies and horror movies play well. Mm-hmm you know, in a bigger environment you know, where when, when everyone's like screaming or laughing along with you, that's kind of when it feels like you're at the movies. Yeah. But for the most part, I'm, cause I'm such a, I'm such a curmudgeon. I, you know, I don't really like people very much. I feel that. Yeah. And what I don't like about going to the movies, I've never really liked it, but these days it's, you know, it's worse than ever is that sense that when I go to the movies and again, I don't, I don't go to the movies habitually to see everything. If I go to the movies, it's because it's something I really want to see on a big screen. Yeah. And I want to have a good experience. And that, you know, that doesn't begin and end with, is the movie any good? It's like, are they going to project it? I've had, I've had really bad luck over the years with like, they projected it wrong or, you know, there was like the sound was out of sync and like, is someone going to go talk to the projectionist about this? Yeah. Like it's not working. But then most of the time it's other people, right? It's people who talk. Mm-hmm. Or are on their phones, or in, in 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 any of the million ways that you can be, they're just not respecting anyone else's experience. And I, I don't like the idea that when I go to a movie, I'm surrendering my experience to, of that movie 
at, to the mercy of 500 mm-hmm. randomly selected people. Any, any, any one of them can, like, can spoil it for me if they choose. So I like my controlled environment. I've got a big TV at home. You, know, you turn the lights down, turn the sound up. Watch the movie on your own terms. If you need to go to the bathroom, pause it, go. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to worry about am I, you know, when should I go to the when should I go to the bathroom so I don't, you know, miss something. Yeah. And obviously there are certain things that will never really, you know, as big as your TV might be at home, it's never the same as like going to the movies. Like mm-hmm. there is that whole and there's all the whole experience around it. I like picking out my hot dog. I like ordering the large popcorn and all the silly stuff that you do. Yep, get the giant um, soda. The whole, that's so the whole ritualistic nature of going, yeah. and the movie is just the centerpiece of it, right? But the whole experience of we're going to the movies, like, it just kind of feels like a thing. Uh, it's a, it's a you know it's a very American, very you know social thing to do, and we all do it. And I, I again, if it's the right movie and I'm in the right company, I'm I'm happy to go. But I just I I, I have very kind of I have a lot of anxiety about everything. Like no matter what I'm doing, I'm thinking what could go wrong, how this might get, how might this get messed up, and. So when I go to the movies, I'm like, I'm scanning already, like who's going to be the person that is going to pull their phone out or talk or, you know, eat really noisy chips or whatever during the movie. And yeah. and it, it doesn't happen as often as I, you know, worry that it might, but it does still happen. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. And we're back. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I am looking forward to, to going back. And, it, and again, it's going to feel weird in a way because more, I, I think like a year being separated from the things that you used to do all the time, like go to restaurants, go to the movies, is enough. That's enough estrangement from those things for them to start to feel like you've forgotten. You've kind of almost forgotten the sensation of what it's like to do those things. So we just started recently doing it. Like we went out and had breakfast at a restaurant, you know, and in one of those kind of little outside pavilion things that they've mm-hmm. all built now. And it was just, it, it was just really nice to kind of look at a menu and, and, and say, I want this. And the person brings me food. It almost kind of feels like, my God, it's, it's almost like a new invention. It's like, wow, why didn't we think of this before? This is great. You look, they have a whole pa- they have all these different foods and you just pick which one you want and they cook it and bring it to you. Yeah. What a, what a, what an innovation. They, they clean for you. They take the yeah, dishes. It's like, and I have to do like... the dishes. They take it all away. This is fantastic. Like it all, it all feels like weirdly new again, you know? And, and of course it's not, but it's again, we've, we've become estranged from it enough that it feels no. Yeah. I mean, it, this is an excellent segue because I have two very distinct like theater going memories of the before times. One of them was Cats, which oh, I sat next to you during and I downed a whole bottle of wine. I was probably the like annoying person in the theater. I remember, I I remember thinking out, when you had your bottle of wine, I was like, man, she's really thought this through. Oh, yes, I, I was I ready. I, I, I gave up drinking years ago. But when I saw that bottle of wine, I was like, man, I should have bought an edible or something. I really could have like y'all really plussed up this experience. I, you know, I, I'll say it a million, I, I'll, I've said it before I say it again. I enjoyed the hell out of that movie. I, I don't know what anyone time. says. Yeah. Did you, again, to some extent, is it a good movie? No. Probably not. No. Did you have a good time? Absolutely. I still don't know what a Jellicle cat is, and I could talk about this for eternity, but I still, <laughs> like, as a theater-going experience, it was, like, one of my last sort of, you know, Christmas award season films, and, like, you were yeah. there, and your wife was there, and, and you know, my friend was there. And then the la- the second, it turned out to be the second to last film I saw in theaters before everything shut down. And I was like, I don't know if this is a badge of honor or not, was Sonic. Sonic was, I think Sonic was the, was maybe the last thing that I saw in theaters before it all went away. It may not be, it may not, that may not be correct, but I think it, what else would it have been? I ended up seeing Onward, it turned out, as my very last I one. think maybe, no, you know what? I think it was Onward. Yeah. But um, I had a, I had a more fun time at Sonic, honestly. Like, not, not comparing the movies themselves, but 
I, you know, and that's another one. Like, I, I was genuinely, especially as someone who's you know going to live through all the bad video game movies that have been made, and oh, is there ever going to be a good one? And I actually thought they did a really good job with it. I was like punching the air. My kid was with me. I think she I heard you it. screaming it, like, from across the theater. <laughs> the, 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 you know, the thing that we, I think that we often forget, especially people that are like in the critical space, and we all get very serious about you know how we how we love movies, and yeah. we're all kind of amateur experts in movies, and we look at them through a certain lens. Especially when you, especially when you go to like a Pixar movie or something like Sonic the Hedgehog, it's really easy to forget who that fil- who, who those films are actually for. Right. Like if you can enjoy them as well as adults, that's nice. That's a bonus. Mm-hmm. But those movies are for kids. Yeah. And talk like you know. And I this now that I've got, she's almost nine years old now. She's going to be nine in a couple of weeks, and she loves all these. Like her favorite movie in the world right now is Luca. Like she's seen Luca like fifty it's a, times. It's adorable. <laughs> I, I it, it, it was far. It's actually far from my favorite Pixar movie. But again, I'm looking at it through a different lens. Right. She absolutely loved it. It spoke to her and her childlike imagination. Mm-hmm. In a way that it, you know, it, it it didn't speak to me in the same way. But you got to remember again, it, it, it's a whole issue with Star Wars. You know, there's two there's two audiences for Star Wars at this point, right? There's children, yeah, and there's man children, <laughs> and yeah, you know, there's you know the, the whole there's basically grown ups and adults. Sorry, you know, adults and, and kids both enjoy these movies, but never forget who they're really for. And if you know a star a new Star Wars movie comes out or a new Pixar movie comes out, and a ten year old likes it. And a thirty-year-old doesn't. I still think that's a success. Yeah. Again, it's 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 nice if they can play across all boundaries. And I've sat. I, I think there's also the argument that maybe kids are a little bit less, a little bit less discerning. Mm-hmm. Like my kid likes a bunch of bad movies, like things that I know are like are, are objectively bad. Right. But as a kid, it all she cares about it does it have the kind of stuff that I want in it. And you know, she's not sitting there like you know scratching her chin, like making notes in a notebook, yeah, like, thinking mm, about the mise en scène you know, here. Is yeah, really exactly just... <laughs> how she's going to critique this film. She, again, all she's asking herself is, "Am I enjoying this? Am I yeah. having fun?" And there's a lot of bad kid movies out there, and there's a lot of good ones as well. So there's definitely, you know, they're they're all equal. I'm not saying you know we don't have a right to criticize these movies as as adults and think about how they're framed for for adults. We do, and that's the great beauty of the Pixar movies is they have something to say for everyone you know there's there's stuff that's specifically for the kids there's stuff that's specifically kind of targeted more as like the kind of little you know nods and winks for the grown-ups in the audience yeah and then there's the stuff that just universally plays for everyone and i think that's the beauty of of the pixar movies they don't necessarily look at them as movies made for children although yeah. that's where most of the money comes from when people go to those movies but they're, they're thinking about just making movies for people like what is a what what is a movie that has like a universal theme that everyone can enjoy. But especially if you go back to like the early days of Pixar, it almost seems very kind of algorithmic. It's like they made a list of like, what are things that kids really like? Well, mm-hmm. they like toys. toys. They yeah. like bugs. They like cars. And it's, they those, love those, cars. it's just, just, just yeah. hit all of those things that, that kids love. And they've obviously been hugely successful doing that. And there's a tremendous amount of artistry and craft that goes into those uh, movies as well. But I do think that is something when people, when I saw someone on, on online saying, oh, I didn't like the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. I'm like, it really doesn't matter what you thought. That movie is so not for you. Yeah. My nine-year-old absolutely loved it. And you know what? I loved it as well. So, you know, nothing's going to be for everybody, but um, I do think it's easy to forget sometimes, um, you know, especially when we have it, this pop culture space, you know, with Marvel and Star Wars. I forget these all started as entertainments for children, mm-hmm. which have now grown, you know, we've all grown up and some of us are, are, are now still children, essentially. And we want to enjoy those things on the same terms as we did when we were kids. And I think that's often, it, may, it, may, it makes the, the the job of a filmmaker often very difficult when you're trying to hit like all those targets and what kids want and what grown ups want are often two very different things. I think it's why the, the Pixar movies 
and to a lesser extent, the Marvel and the Star Wars movies are to be commended it's because they do a job of, it's very, very hard to hit a broad target and satisfy everyone. But those, those, those movies that, you know, have risen kind of to the top of the pop culture pantheon have done that by achieving exactly that, by basically finding a way to kind of please almost everyone across the, across the demographic spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, is your is your movie good? And then I think animation in particular gets a really bad rap here where it's like, oh yeah, it's kids' movies. I was like, no, they're kid-friendly. They're really good movies often, but they are also kid-friendly as opposed to, you know, some of them are definitely more aimed at children, right? But like a Pixar movie, I think in, especially, or like even like a Moana from Disney, you know, I'm like, no, that had stuff for adults in it too, but it's kid-friendly, it's inclusive. Yeah, like, and you're that, absolutely and right. Like, it's who is this for? <laughs> that that actually touches on another issue that I think has been a bit annoying for again, especially as a parent. Once you become a parent, you kind of look at things through different eyes in terms of would my kid enjoy this? And um, I look at, for example, what has happened in the DC universe with like the Batman and the Superman movies. <laughs> I don't know how this how the, and the Chris Nolan movies I think are, are very good, and mm-hmm. the Zack Snyder movies have been kind of a mixed bag, whatever. Yep. But like, we somehow got to a point where you know through the tastes of the studios or whatever it was that dictated this so many of these the marvel have again brilliantly managed to avoid this by keeping their movies even though they kind of modulate in tone yeah. they're always kind of ultimately kind of bright and cheerful and fun for everyone yeah the dc movies leaned so hard into this into this kind of gritty desaturated it's always raining everyone's miserable all the time kind of energy that you know i had this realization like wow like i i can't take my kid to see the new superman film What's that about? How's that? How, how do we yeah, get to I that? Yeah, I never point? even thought of that, but you're absolutely right. Like it's it's exclusionary. My kid loves Batman. My kid loves Superman. She watches Teen Titans and mm-hmm. uh, DC Superhero Girls, and she reads the comics, and she knows who all the characters. She knows who Ra's al Ghul is. Like she's really into that pantheon. But I can't. I, I, and I and I would happily show her like the original Richard Donner film, mm-hmm. right? But I couldn't show her man of steel or justice league because it's so dark and gritty and scary now that these characters that were again batman and superman were originally created for the most part to kind of entertain children and and children are now to a large extent being locked out of those of those big budget movies by the tonal choices that have been made my kid my kid loves this movie that just came out on netflix this robert rodriguez movie called we can be heroes which is basically actually I don't it's necessarily a great movie, but it's a, no, but it's, it's a live action superhero movie yeah. that kids of all ages can enjoy. And that weirdly has become a rarity because Hollywood has pushed everything towards, again, wanting to appease the man children. Right. And, you know, kind of the, you know, all the kind of the YouTube, um, you know, beard strokers who are like, mm, you know, how correctly does this reflect my view of the Superman mythology? And we take it all so seriously. And somewhere along the way, we have forgotten that this stuff was originally for kids. And why, why, why are we now saying that kids can't come to these movies anymore because we made them too dark and scary for a lot of children? That's actually really sad. I never thought of it that way, but you are absolutely right. And I think that that does explain why like, I gravitate towards Marvel movies in general. I think like Wonder Woman was a good example of a DC film recently-ish that, not, not 84, but just like the first one where... You know, it was it was more buoyant, right? It was more optimistic. Yeah. Like, you know, it might be a little more violent than your daughter is ready for, but someday you could show her that, right? Or in the next, you know, few years, as opposed to <laughs> Snyder Cut, which you nobody should watch, but <laughs> just because too long, too many hours. But yeah, man, what a bummer. Yeah, it's huh. um, I I don't know if there were ever, you know, I, I I think you know the 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 DC, the the history of kind of the whole DC and Marvel cinematic universe has been fascinating. Where Marvel did this really remarkable thing, I I really can't say enough about it in terms of what kind of Kevin Feige and, and Marvel have done over the year in the last in the last 10 or 12 years, you know, built that what they built with those with the, I mean, 20 or so movies and 
none of them are like there's not a single bad movie in that bunch like the worst one is merely pretty good right i mean again some people may disagree but for the most part those movies are really good yeah and they managed and they somehow managed to make this incredible quilt stitched together from all these different parts were like you know and they're all totally so so different like thor ragnarok and winter soldier had so like diametrically different um uh tonally and yet they all are able to somehow occupy and inhabit the same universe and just keeping that quality up at the rate at which they've made those movies and just you know they've provided all this kind of wonderful entertainment it's been such a thrill to see all those heroes come together and it's like again really speaks to the you know to the 10 year old and whether whether we're 10 or or you know 50 years old like the, the 10 year old in all of us is responding you know when cap picks up thor's hammer ever and goes yeah we all like yeah. that's that's the child in us that's responding to all of that stuff the 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 dc response to it has been really really interesting in the sense that i kind of felt like they they looked at what marvel did and went well we can't just copy that even though they've shown that that's a really successful way to do it yeah um so let's try and kind of like back into some of this and we'll do it a different way and will be totally different. But again, I think they've tried so hard to kind of build out a, a, a different kind of tonal identity for themselves. They, 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 for me, again, as, as a parent, they pushed it a little too far in, in terms of just making a lot of, a, a lot of these characters like Batman and Superman, who my kid loves, inaccessible to her until she's a bit older. It's like, like again, it's like, oh yeah, you can watch, you can watch Superman when you're a bit older. Like what the hell? Like there should be no age limit for a right. Superman type character. I was reading Superman when I was her age. And again, there are Superman books and things like that that you can steer her towards. It's just weird that at the very, very top end. Right. Of, the most like you know, broad reaching version of the, it. The, you know, the big, you know, the one, the one that is most public facing, the one they spend the most money on, hundreds of millions of dollars, 5,000 screens. This is, you know, in many people's imagine people who aren't like big comic readers, that's Superman. That's the version that everyone knows, you know, the Henry Cavill version currently or the, whatever the Zack Snyder thing that's going on. And I can't take my kid to see that movie in a way that I could have taken her to see the Richard Donner one back in the day. It's just so strange to me that we somehow, somehow ended up in that place. It's like, I feel like a kind of greedy grown up coming into a, a into a, a child's playroom and like sweeping up all the toys and say, only I can play with these now because I want to tell really dark gritty stories where batman's going to murder people so you go play with something go play with my little pony or whatever because i have these toys now it's kind of dude you had your turn when you were 10 let her be 10 years old and play with these toys it's almost not even just you can't you play with these toys like i'm going to collect these toys and leave them in the boxes and put them on a shelf and you can't play with them like they're not oh yeah they're not in box yeah they're like new new in box like (laughs) you know i'm gonna sell money but 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 yeah i mean yeah wow what a bummer! All right, so guess we're not going back to the movies anytime soon. At least for I, so I'm, it's, it's a good question. Like I'm trying to think when I will, when I would actually. I, I think maybe I, my feeling is it'll be Bond. Yeah, I mean, for me, it, touching on what you've just said, like I told myself that hopefully, you know, by the time that Zhang Chi comes out. Because I was like, all right, oh, that's, a big, sure, yeah. that's a big blockbuster one. Just for me, like Asian, Asian American representation. I want to support that movie. It just, it's also like something that seems like you need to see on a big screen. And Black Widow is coming out like in a week or two. But I was just like, it's not, I, I don't know. I want to see the stories propel forward. And Black Widow for me is like a, enough. I think it's a prequel. So I'm like, nah, I'm okay. I'll be okay at home. Yeah. And, you know, and I think they're still, they're still doing the option where those are going to drop on Disney plus if you want to, and yeah. that has actually been a real, um, a real lifesaver for us around here. Cause a lot of these movies that my kid would want to see, and we, and we just can't take it to the theater yet. Cause she's yeah. not vaccinated. And that's how we, how we've chosen to do it. 
is, you know, a lot of people have, have complained about, you know, like, so when Raya and The Last Dragon came out, which is another movie that the whole family love, people complain, oh, you know, I already pay for Disney Plus and it's like 30 bucks extra to rent this movie. It's like, man, to go to the movies. Yeah, at least 30. With your family, by the time you've like paid for parking and maybe there's a babysitter or whatever, by the time mm-hmm. you've gone, it's a lot more than 30 bucks and she gets to watch it as many times as she wants. Trust me, have you ever seen the way that kids watch movies? Give them a 48 hour window. Yeah. She will, she will make, she will, she will get her money's worth out of it. She'll watch that movie 10 times. In 48 hours. If I know, I was going to say, but when we were recording this, Luca has only been out for like four days. So really we're talking about like a three a day, or five days, you know, so like a three a day viewing worth your money. There's your Disney plus subscription value right there. In one. Yeah. And it's been, it's been, as somebody who works in Hollywood, it's been fascinating to see all of these different, you know, it's been forced on us by circumstance, obviously, but it's been really interesting to see the studios, you know, experiment with all these different distribution models and i'm sure the theater owners don't love it at all because you know they can they potentially see the writing on the wall i think theaters are going to come back strong i think once yeah. you know every, once we can all really go back to the theaters i think they're going to be packed out and i i, I don't i think everything's going to you're going to pick up right where it left out left off but i can only certainly understand why exhibitors don't love this idea that you know first run releases are now being made available in the home but for me again for someone who would much rather often see a movie at home with all, without all the hassle of having to pack everyone into a car and go and yeah. find parking and worry about getting a decent seat and everything else. I'm I, 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 like boss baby two is coming out. My kid loves the boss baby movies. I said, like, Oh man, I, I hope it's going to be streaming. And it is, it's go, it's going to be in theaters, but it's also on Peacock. Yeah. So we could just, you know, press a button and watch it uh, here at home. But it has been fascinating to see all the different ways that, you know, universal had a model where trolls world tour, you know, you, you got mm-hmm. it for, they were the first, you know, yeah. you just, you just rented it a la carte for a certain like, 40 hour window or whatever. And, and, you know, Wonder Woman and, and uh, all the HBO Max stuff where they're just yep. making it available for free, which is kind of, kind of amazing. Like first run movies, you know, essentially for free baked into the subscription you're already paying in the home yeah. is something I didn't think we'd ever see. And it's interesting to see like you know, on Disney Plus, even like experimenting with different models, like even within their own ecosystem, like the Pixar, I don't know how they, how they fig- figured out how they want to experiment with it, but like the Pixar movies, like Soul and now Luca, which would have been, you know, theatrical releases mm-hmm. were just there for no extra cost. But then stuff like Moana, so stuff like um, Mulan and yeah, Raya, Raya, you had to pay that premium tier. So it's, I feel like but they're Black taking Widow the to experiment first. with like, yeah. just they're, they're, they're gathering all this data about what, you know, how, how are people consuming these movies? How much are they willing to pay? And I suspect that what the studios might well be learning is, oh shit, we're actually made, we can make as much money, if not more doing it this way than through a typical theatrical release. And again, that might not be music to the ears for theater owners, but the, but the studios are ultimately going to do whatever makes them the most money. So again, in terms of things that might not go back to the way they were, you might see that hybrid model of Disney or HBO, you know, Warner Brothers, whoever, continuing to release movies. That might be that might be the new normal. Yes, it's in theaters if you want to have the big screen theatrical experience, but if you want to just watch it at home, it will be there day and date as well. And yeah. we're gathering all this data right now and learning, like if that is financially, if that makes sense for the studios and for audiences. Um, but I, I, I do think that is something that you're going to see one aspect of the the film industry that might be forever changed is movies just coming more into the home because the studios have learned that it's actually financially advantageous for them to do it that way. They never would have done this had they not been forced to, but right. having been forced to, they're like, oh, look at that. That actually worked out pretty good. Let's keep doing it. You know, if any of your work ever ended up in like a simul release, would you care? I assume you would be totally fine with it. I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing some, I'm doing some work for Netflix right now, you know, where, you know, the idea of a theatrical, you know, Netflix sometimes will do these kind of, you know, limited run. You know, yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll just for the benefit of the director or whatever who wants to have that experience, you know, they'll do like a big, 
you know, they'll often do a theatrical premiere or if it's a movie they think might be like an awards yeah, movie, the they awards have to stuff, put it in yeah. theaters because they want to qualify for Oscars and things like that. Or they, again, it might be like a, li a little, little uh, limited run. But no, not really. I mean, you know, it's always exciting to see something that you've done kind of writ large on the big screen. But if filmmakers cared, really, really cared about that and only that, Netflix wouldn't be viable. Right. You, you've got like Spielberg just signing a big deal. Yeah, with mayor Netflix of anti-streaming town suddenly changes his tune. At, at, at some point you realize if you can't beat him, join him, I guess. But I, yeah. I, I, do, I, do know that I, I do know directors who had movies that went straight to Netflix who said like they missed... The, it being on the big screen and yeah i think like you, you tarantino and nolan and the real yeah. like the real kind of cine the real cineast filmmakers will probably be the last to oh, you know to ever yeah. to ever give out but for the for, but for the most part again this is just the new the new reality i think yeah well i want to segue a little bit because i want to talk about your last year and a half in terms of creating content okay so I think the last time we actually talked, it was via Animal Crossing. And it was like, Animal Talking had just been like really hit. I mean, it had hit it big, but it was like you, this was, I think the last time we talked was like, you were, I think you told me like Sting was going to come on and then Sting came on. He really <laughs> did. I wasn't making that up. Yeah. No, you were not. I didn't, I believed, I, you know, I never doubted, but how, how was that? How was that? And then now you're doing like your Twitch stream stuff. And it's just, it's, I feel like it's a totally different, I don't know, world, ecosystem, content creation job sometimes for you. And, and a lot of people have shifted to it, right? Like I've seen a bunch of like comedians and stuff like that doing all of this online stuff. And I'm just like, oh, not only has theatrical and television distribution changed, but you know, now streaming is more mainstream, right? Like what, what's that been like? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's necessity is a mother of invention, right? And right. I think for, with, with creative people, life, life finds a way. Like if you take away their traditional avenues to do what it is that they do, which is entertain people, they'll find their own way to do it. And, you know, thank God the internet has given us that direct, you know, way to reach out to people. You know, it's right. nothing particularly new, you know, YouTube and things have been around for a while. I think Twitch is really at the vanguard of this, you know, where you can have like a live audience and people, you know, a sense of community. And that was fun for me. I, I was Twitch streaming for a while prior to the pandemic. Just, I thought it was kind of a fun thing to do kind of as a hobby. But then when the pandemic came down and you're right, by the way, a lot of, like, a lot of comedians, a lot of people I know, like people like Paul Shear, right. and Shannon Woodward and others and Rob Hubel and all these, uh, Paul Tompkins, all these comedians have all found ways to, a lot of them have migrated over to Twitch. And again, they're all saying the same thing is that even when all the, all the normal avenues come back online, they're going to keep doing the Twitch thing because they've actually found they, they enjoy doing it and they enjoy having that direct, you know, connection uh, with an audience. So it's been a really interesting creative experiment for all kinds of people. For me, it was just a way to kind of feel connected to people when a lot of, you know, traditional connective tissue in our lives had been taken away. I'm, I, I'm not a big one to leave the house anyway. I joke all the time that when the pandemic's over, I, I look forward to going back to not leaving the house of my own accord, like <laughs> being my decision yeah. rather than something I'm forced to stay home. But I, I'm not, terribly outgoing to begin with. I live my life. I'm very online. I'm on social media a lot. I'm kind of a homebody. But when that choice gets taken away and you realize, oh, I, I couldn't go out even if I wanted to, mm -hmm. you kind of, it kind of provokes this desire to, to kind of have that, find a way to have that connection anyway. Twitch ended up being a great avenue for that. And Animal Crossing, uh, I mean, a lot's been written and, and said about this already, but you know, that, that game really did come out at exactly the right time. If, yes. if you remember, it was originally it was delayed. It was supposed to come out, I think, several months earlier. And but then the delayed date ended up being like it came out right as the pandemic was really starting to bite. Mm -hmm. And it was it was just like this like this tonic, this this elixir, this cordial 
that we all needed. I, I remember just anecdotally, like my wife and my daughter and I, we all play it. Yeah. We all love Animal Crossing. And my wife goes all the way back to the GameCube version playing oh, it. Wow. My daughter has it on her 3DS and they've all played different versions of it over the years. So we were all really excited about the Switch version. And the way the timing worked out was the guy, the, you know, the, 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 the truck with the three copies of Animal Crossing that we had ordered showed up right as we had started to get to that point where as much as we all love each other, when you're cooped up all day, you start yep. to get on each other's nerves a little bit. The tempers start to fray. The, the you know, kind of the, the cohesion starts to, you know, kind of fray a little bit at the edges. You start to, you know, you're snapping each other a little bit. It's just just when that was starting to kick in, yeah. from all feeling so cooped up. And this was a problem that, you know, we saw it in households all over the world, I'm sure. Animal Crossing came in. And as soon as everyone kind of put it into their Nintendo Switches and started playing, the mood in the house just lifted instantly. It was like this miracle cure. Right. Because the the promise of that game was, again, it's just so perfectly aligned with what we were going through in the real world. It was kind of like, hey, the real world sucks right now, but why don't you come to this beautiful, cute, bucolic island, you know, in the middle of, you know, a tropical ocean where everyone's everyone's an adorable animal who's your best friend and you don't have to do anything. And yeah. the worst thing that can ever happen to you is maybe you get stung by a wasp. And people were like, oh Which my God. Which is a terrible thing. Yes. Tarantulas, <laughs> scorpions. <laughs> but Nightmares. even that, so just slap a bit of medicine on it and it's instantly fixed. Like nothing no, bad can happen to you no in the world of Animal Crossing, right? Right. And so people really wanted that. It was, it literally was an escape from your troubles. And when you're just kind of meandering around on your island, people, you know, just really, really responded to that as a way to kind of forget their troubles, even for a you know, a couple of hours a day and the music and everything. So the the sound of the waves washing on the beach, it's almost like this ASMR, yep. you know. Um, Meditative. Uh, it's, like, it's a safe yeah. space. It's a yeah. literal safe space you can go to. And so I, I started playing it on my Twitch stream quite a lot and people were tuning in and watching and I was kind of messing around with my house. And so I was playing the game live with an audience of people kind of talking to me as I'm playing. And what happened was I had a basement in my house that, I was trying to find something to do with it. I turned it into like a video video game run man cave kind of thing. And uh-huh. it's kind of a testament to the game that you can really make all these, like my basement right now is actually a, um, it's like a, um, like an Asian style night food street market kind of oh, thing that I had made. Nice. It's all underground and yeah. it has, it has this cool, and you can bake anything like the right. tool set is amazing. And what came out, came out of that idea was like one Saturday morning, I was goofing around on my stream uh, and I cleared out the basement and made it completely, just completely empty, just gutted it. So it was just like a blank canvas. Like, what, what do I want to do with it? And I don't even remember where the moment came from, but I was messing around. I think I had like a desk and a couch. And the idea came from, the, the idea originally was just some something like, could I recreate like the Tonight Show set on here? Yeah. Because, you know, as soon as you see a desk and a couch, the iconography of that, like it, it's kind of baked into the American popular consciousness right we yeah. all we've all grown up with the tonight show and letterman and conan and yep. we all again we all know that visual language the desk the couch the curtain you know the host the monologue the yeah, band like the band the, yeah the spotlights that, 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 is, like... that has been baked into american popular culture since the 1950s and it's not changed it's barely it's like the most static format in american television because it's comfort television it's the same you're watching the same when you watch Fallon, you're watching the same stuff that your parents and your grandparents watched when they were watching Steve Allen and um and and Johnny and all these guys yeah. back in you know back in the day. And so it's something about that as 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 kind of like a cornerstone of American popular culture really 
kind of stuck with me. I didn't grow up on that. When I was in the UK, when I was growing up in the UK, we didn't have that late night format. Uh, and so but I was aware of it. And when I came to America, it was fascinating. Go, oh, these are those shows. This is Johnny Carson. This is Jay Leno. This is yeah. Letterman. People do actually really watch these shows. Like, I, I only experienced it secondhand through like scenes in movies when like someone's in bed late at night watching The Tonight Show or right. watching or- Letterman or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, we, know, we all know that Americans watch those kind of shows before they fall asleep. And I came to America. It's like, wow, that really is a thing. Like, the, we we watch we watch these shows, and they're still very popular today. It's like this one f- kind of format of American television that's never going to fundamentally change, and will probably always be with us. Um, and so I thought trying to recreate that almost as like a museum piece, or just treating Animal Crossing like a doll's house would be like a fun thing to do. And what happened was because of the, again, the really good tool set that Animal Crossing has, I was actually able to build re- relatively easily build a version of a, 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 a generic talk show set, but it was ma- ma- mainly modeled on The Tonight Show because that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the, the granddaddy of them all. And it looked really good. I had the, the kind of the, the, the night sky city wallpaper in the background. We were literally, there's all these kind of Easter eggs that we put on the show. They were literally kind of between two ferns. We had yep. all the plants in the background. There was like was the of, raccoon or the woodchuck at one yeah, point. We had like, yeah, we had a little raccoon figurine, all, kind of, all, the, all the little kind of tchotchkes and pop culture things yeah. that you see in the background. And we found a desk and a couch and a mic, like a desk mic and everything that just looked, and we built a little band area. And what was interesting was because I was doing it with a live audience, people were kind of saying, oh, you should do a band, like do a drum kit. Or they would actually even send me, oh, I have a drum kit that would be perfect for this. And everyone was kind of like donating and volunteering. I didn't have everything in my inventory at first, but people would donate. I've got a guitar. I've got a jukebox that could go in the corner that would look good. Here's a mic stand. And people wanted to contribute to this kind of emerging project. And by the time it was done, um, we had a really good facsimile of a late night talk show set up on its feet. And um, it looked so good. People say, you should do something with it. You should do something with it. I was, I was just going to knock it down again, having made it. Yeah. Uh, and, and people said, no, do something with it. And so I spoke to a friend of mine, uh, Naomi Kyle, who's a popular kind of internet host and um, has done a bunch of acting and stuff like that and said, do you want to, I think the way I initially pitched it to her was like, do you want to like play dress up and like play talk show the way that kids might play tea party, you know, like we pretend to do a talk show. And so she dressed up her character in like, you know, a nice outfit that you would go if you were going on to a real talk show. And I found a nice suit and a pair of kind of horn horn rimmed spectacles that made me look very much like a talk show host. And she brought her character over to my island via, you know, the Nintendo online connection yep. and we did and we just and we just kind of cosplayed it i was like please welcome my next guest naomi kyle and she came down and we played applause and stuff and the audience just that were in the in the chat just were just eating it up and it was really really fun to kind of revert to all of those tropes because again we all know what a talk show interview looks like right it's it's mm-hmm. light entertainment it's banter it's chit chat yep. it's a bit of jo- it's a bit of joking around everyone's you know kind of everyone's having got a, good a story yeah everyone's got an anecdote yep oh tell me about your new book I understand you brought a clip from your new movie. Let's yeah. watch the clip. It's like you, it, we all again. We all know these patterns because they're so enshrined. Yeah, again, yeah. It, 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 that format has not changed, and so and we just slipped. It, it kind of fell effortlessly into it just through. We're all kind of experts on what talk shows look and sound like just through having consumed you know decades of them over the years, and it, we just had a, a ton of fun doing it. And it was one of those things where, like, once you've done it, you kind of get the bug. It's like I know I never want to do karaoke, but like. Well, after I've done one song, like I mean, it goes straight back to the songbook. Like I want yeah. to do another one. Right. You kind of get that little bit of bug, and it was fun to perform for people. It was fun to be social and to have people over. And I ended up doing a lot of it after it went viral, which is a whole other story. 
I ended up doing a bunch of media interviews about the show and, I, and it, you know, being asked all these questions about why it had become popular. I, it was kind of forced me to think about it in a way that I hadn't, I was just happy that it was successful. I didn't really like, hmm, let's figure out why this, why this happened the way it did. But when people are constantly asking the same questions, it forces you to give them an answer. And I think there really is something about this concept of the metaverse, which mm -hmm. we've seen, you know, Fortnite and games like this are all now evolving away from being just video games and they're becoming more destinations. They're places to go. Like kids long ago, and Epic Games basically kind of followed the lead that their audience was was giving. They were basically telling them what they wanted the game to be yeah. through their own kind of behavioral patterns. And they were going to Fortnite less to actually play the game and more to just hang out with their friends. Like it's just a place that they went to hang out with their friends. It's like when I play golf, I like to go play golf with my friends in real life, but I, I suck at golf, but it doesn't matter because the game is incidental. The game is secondary. The game is just the mechanism through which you hang out with your friends right. on a nice sunny day and picturesque surroundings and yeah. you, know, what, you get what out of the house the you have some fresh yeah, air it, it, yeah it's just an excuse to hang out and Fortnite's becoming an excuse to hang out animal crossing had become that and there was something really magical about the idea of this kind of metaversical space where i remember we had one episode where there was i was on the couch and my band leader adam was was over by the drums and i had, I had two guests on the couch and we're all in, in the same physical space and we're all talking to each other live via yeah. discord but I'm in San Francisco, Adam's in Vancouver, and the two guests were respectively in like Manhattan and uh, Paris. Right. And but we're all in the we're all in the same space, and it was yeah. That was kind of the magic of it, and that was kind of the magic of the talk show. It was one of our one of our talking points, one of our kind of bragging rights at the time was the idea that at a time when even Jimmy Fallon and Conan uh, and uh, Colbert and all the kind of the titans, all like the big guys in the world of kind of talk shows had all been relegated to their broom cupboards, basically right. interviewing people over Zoom, which we're all sick of at this point, right? Right, um, very we much, were, we, yeah. were, we were the only talk show that actually had a working set with a band and you know a desk and a couch and people were actually coming onto the set because it was a virtual set. Yeah. And it, and it worked for people. And I, th I felt like there was this magical kind of confluence of, again, when it went viral, I was forced to think about why, it ha why that happened the way that it did. And there's this weird chemistry of like if you've got like a little bit of the familiar and a little bit of the new mm -hmm. then that is often the, the 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 right formula for something to to take off if you do something completely familiar people are like oh well i've seen that a million times before what, what are you bringing to the table that's new yeah you know they'll, they'll move on if you if you try if you create something truly radical and different that's completely unlike anything anyone's ever seen that can that could work but there's also a lot of people that might you know what it is too wacky for me i don't I, I don't there's no like nothing i can connect to here nothing nothing i recognize or understand but the idea the idea of basically taking a familiar format and there is nothing more familiar than like the american late night talk show but presenting it in a new way through this delivery mechanism animal crossing which was already having a cultural moment right that we kind of piggybacked off of that's why Variety and you know Newsweek and all these places came knocking is partly because oh it's Animal Crossing and my editor told me I need to write stories about Animal Crossing right and here's something really we popular can, yeah. right now Wait, it's like you know, it's like J Jonah Jameson where's my Animal Crossing story <laughs> give me more pictures of Animal Crossing. Yeah, yeah, I want more pictures of Tom Nook <laughs> on my desk tomorrow oh you're and fired <laughs> but I mean let's hope and, that, and that's why it was such an easy sell yeah. and also partly because i have star wars in my background like almost all of this all of the headlines were like star wars yeah oh those are two things that i recognize yeah put those together but yeah so we did we did a few episodes that again it, it was never meant to become 
this weird monster that it that it became. eventually kind of outgrew its welcome in my estimation because it became so stressful when we started having really 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 big guests on but the first few episodes that we did it really was just like i think for the second episode it was like literally just like my wife and her friend on the couch yeah and then another episode it was just like my friend my friends would come over and you know we would just hang out and at some point twitch cottoned on to what we were doing and thought it was cool and they put us on the front page Mm -hmm. and that was the first episode where we had on a musical guest we figured out a way to actually have our musical guests sing live on and perform music live on stage you know through their avatar and it was kind of cool and no one had ever done anything quite like it and again it was just that just that right pixie dust recipe of oh i get what they're doing here it's a talk show i know what that is yeah but it's but it's a new take on it and especially in the context of the pandemic it was just one of those things where you accidentally kind of stumbled into lightning in a bottle and then what the really weird thing that happened was after it started showing up on a more mainstream radar through you know variety like i said newsweek washington post and the Virgin, all these places covered it and started talking about it we started i started having talent bookers reaching out to me saying can such and such a person come on uh, on the show and because i'm on social media and animal crossing was really really popular and everyone was playing it any time a celebrity tweeted about that they were they were into animal crossing or they were playing it yeah like brie larson and danny trejo and elijah wood and all, all of whom ended up on the show yeah um every every like literally within five seconds of someone saying oh i'm playing animal crossing I would get tagged into that conversation. Oh, you should go on Gary's show. And we, and again, that's, I ended up reaching out to Danny and Elijah and they all ended up uh, coming on. But what became really strange to me was when people started approaching us mm-hmm. and, you know, like I said, Sting's agent said, Sting wants to come on your show. And I'm like, I, li- I seriously thought I was getting catfished or pranked or something. There's no way. Yeah. And it actually wasn't until Sting's official account on Twitter tweeted out that he was on. I was like, okay, I know this is real now because they can't yeah. fake that. But I, I actually had not spoken to Sting until he came on the show. <laughs> but he came on and it was just, we had Kevin Smith on that same show and Kevin met his wife and, and Kevin told Sting this story in the show that he like, he, he first had sex with his wife, went to the to the soundtrack of a Sting track. Oh my God. And he was like, tell, and, 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 and I got the impression that Sting's heard that story a million times. You have no That's, idea yeah. how many babies... I've, you know, I've, I've gonna inadvertently sighed through my music. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not a new story, but Kevin was just freaking out because it was funny. Sting was, he was at his villa in Tuscany because of course he was. Yeah. Where else, where else would Why Sting not? be? Why wouldn't, yeah, of course. He was in this villa in, in somewhere in, in Italy and he's got this incredible <laughs> studio out there. And as one does in their villa in Italy, yeah. <laughs> I remember his agent saying, just, just, bear, just bear in mind, I've been saying, like, just bear in mind that when Sting comes on, you know, we were recording, I think in the, uh, in the early sometime in the morning yeah but it so was the like in the, it, it was yeah. in the afternoon for him because of the time difference we wanted to accommodate him and i think his agent said just just bear in mind like sting likes to have a couple of campari's in in the <laughs> afternoon so he might be a little loose i'm like right. that sounds good so i'm great i mean that's yeah. fantastic i couldn't ask for more and we just had these kind of magical moments that could we built like his avatar and you know we put him he thought it was hilarious there's a lot of celebrities got a kick out of seeing their animal crossing caricatures like on screen they yeah. they in some cases people would bring on their their own characters people that played animal crossing would bring on their own characters like brie larson and dan and danny and elijah all had their own characters but for someone like sting who wanted to come on the show but didn't play animal crossing we had to come up with a way to make that happen and so what we right. would do is we'd actually take my wife's character and kind of give her digital plastic surgery and make her to basically turn her character into sting yeah and so my wife would kind of do the virtual like she would like puppet sting's avatar <laughs> 
and she's listening to the show live in Discord. So that if I tell Sting a joke and he laughs, she can make the character laugh in real time. So there was this weird kind of hybrid thing going on. (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing. She was kind of doing the the puppeteering and Sting was doing the voice. And so these two things kind of all, and it was all happening live and it all came together. And Sting's watching it live on a little monitor. Thought it was hilarious. But we just had these magic moments. I remember like hearing this kind of guitar strum in the background. I'm like, are you sitting there with a guitar right now? Because I can't see him, right? right? I can only see his character. And I've got his voice in my ear. He goes, yeah, do you want me to play something for you? And me and Kevin were like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he ended up doing like this little mini medley of like all these like, you know, like all your favorite Sting songs. And we were just sitting there. I could hear, I could hear, I could hear Kevin in the background going, holy shit. More babies were conceived that night to his medley. Oh my God. It, 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 it was amazing. And then, and then the wonderful thing about that happening was like, once someone like that comes on, right. it makes it that much easier. for it. that, It's like, yeah. you know, Sting came on our show, you know, like that, that, that confers upon us some kind of legitimacy. And we ended up, we, like I said, with Brie and T-Pain and Shaggy and uh, Selena Gomez. Selena Gomez was probably the that biggest one. That wild, yeah. It was absolutely r- ridiculous. And it, like I said, I can't speak enough about how much celebrities got a kick out of being on that show. Because the, the novelty of it was just delightful for them. We built this great little Selena Gomez avatar that she thought was wonderful. And after the show, I didn't know, I had no idea because I, I, I'm not a cool guy, right? I'm not plugged into like what the young people are into. I I honestly didn't have a real sense of how famous Selena Gomez was until she was actually on the show. I was like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, I get it now. And after the fact, her publicists reached out to me and said, you should know that that is by far the longest interview that Selena Gomez has ever sat for, like by far, uh, because she just enjoyed doing it so much that she just kind of forgot that the time was you know, going, Passing, I think she, yeah. I think she did like a 40, she said, this would happen all the time. It happened with Sting as well. Like their publicist would always say, he's only got 20 minutes. So right. remember to get, get, get in and out in 20 minutes. And, and, and I, and that would happen all the, but it was happening all the time. I'd get to and my alarm would go off at 20 minutes and I would, and I would say like, do you need to get out of here? And they're like, no, I'm good. I'll stick around. This is fun. Yeah. And that's why I'm with Selena. She ended up doing like 45 minutes telling jokes and singing and stuff like that. And it was just, it was the most fun thing in the world, but it, like I said, it was almost kind of a victim of its own success where it became, once someone like, once you get like Selena's and Sting's and yeah. people like this coming on the show, it become it always starts to get away from you a little bit. Right. And the, just the idea of like, like the kind of the whimsy of like me sitting around with my friends, it wasn't that show anymore. And it actually became like a real celebrity talk show with all of the hassle that goes along with that. Well, it's also work, right? Yeah. It, it, it became like a big job and I didn't have, I had a couple of people that helped me behind the scenes without whom I couldn't have done. My wife was helping me. My friend Kate was helping me. My friend Adam yeah. was helping me. And I had various other people that kind of chipped in as well. But when the show was live, I was doing kind of 90% of the heavy lifting. I'm running all the, when I say like, like, like here's the difference. Like when Jimmy Fallon says, Let's roll the clip. Yeah. He just sits else. back and like someone up in the <laughs> yeah. booth does it, right? And he goes away and like, you know, reads Dips a his coffee, or, does it, yeah, whatever. Yeah, his coffee. I'm the one going, oh shit, where's, I'm going, let's roll the clip. And then I instantly become like, oh shit, like where's the clip? Yeah. And I'm like the one man band of it all. And we had so many fl- like flubs and mistakes and things that went wrong. The, but fortunately, because we were such a, sh- I, I was always like very upfront about how this is like a shoestring and duct tape operation. Yeah. And I would get like my, my character because I was essentially playing a character when I was the talk show guy. 
would get quite uh, stroppy about it. Like when something would go wrong, like, what do you what would expect from me? I'm doing all this. I'm sitting here in my sweatpants yeah. trying to make a talk show. Like, you know, you get what you pay for. This is not high production values. Right. But even the, it's in even a video game. <laughs> yeah. Even the celebrities thought that was hilarious. And again, that was actually a big part. You, you touch on a good point there. So saying, hey, it's a video game. That was actually all the celebrity stuff aside, which again was really, really fun, but kind of came with a lot of baggage that made it very stressful. For me, the most actually the most fun part of it was just kind of the hobbyist angle of basically taking a platform that was never built to do what we made it do. It was just meant to be a video game. Like if if Nintendo wanted to build, you know, a tool that allowed you to stage virtual performances and talk shows and things like that, they would have built something very different with like better camera control yeah. and more ability to kind of place objects on the set and stuff like that. But they didn't do that. You know, they created a video game that had some li- limited camera movement and ability to to kind of furnish, you know, an empty room with 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 things objects and props and furniture and stuff like that but it wasn't built to do what we wanted it to do and so trying to trying to kind of macgyver and figure out um solutions and ways for us to kind of get the camera pointing where we wanted it and there's a weird thing that we did for example when we had a musical performance that was on a separate part of the stage. There was like a, there was an air, there was a separate area. You know how like, again, when, when Jimmy Fallon says, and now presuming their new song, the Foo Fighters, they're over there somewhere, right? On a right. separate part of the stage, which is yep. just set up There's for the another band. camera. <laughs> but for me, but, but I don't have another camera for me to, right. for, so for me to get over there, and this is the weird thing in Animal Crossing, the camera always Follows rotates. Follows you, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm I, as, the, as the player character, the host of the show, the camera's always rotating around me. I'm the central point around which the camera pivots. So I can't get the camera to go over there unless I also go over there and bring the camera with me. Right. So what we what we ended up doing was, and it's really, you can see if you know what to look for, it's actually really creepy. When <laughs> when when someone's performing over in the, the, the band area, I'm hiding behind a fern that we put there. We've got a <laughs> potted plant there. And my host character is, I've got him positioned so he's like almost completely obscured behind it. The camera's still focused on me, but you can't see me because I'm hiding behind a fern. Right. But I've got, I've, I've kind of managed to brute force the camera into such a way that it looks like it's looking at the singer. And yeah. so we found all these, all these, again, all these kind of like MacGyver solutions, ways to kind of get the, the program to, to do what we wanted to. It was never perfect. And again, but again, we but we just left in all the flubs because it was part part of the charm of the show that we were a bunch of idiots making this show. <laughs> but the 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 funny thing about it was it really was kind of like Wayne's World in a way, and I, I mean like the real the thing about like what the real Wayne's World was when you know Christopher Walken or whatever or John Bon Jovi or whoever went on Wayne's World, they're not going on Wayne's World, they're going on Saturday Night Live, right, right which is a big show. But we actually had Wayne's World, which is just some dopes in their basement. Like with no, you know, with no real, you know, outlet or anything. I mean, we were out on Twitch and, you know, the, we were getting pretty good numbers by that point, but we really were just some amateurs in a basement trying to, trying to make a talk show, Yeah. but we had some of the biggest stars in the world come on because they saw something different or special or interesting or whimsical or charming in what we were trying to do. And it's, it was wonderful. In, in the, in the end, I stopped doing, we did 25 episodes of the show and it got to, I always said, if it got to the point where it's bringing me more stress than it is mm. joy, I'm just going to stop doing it. And it did eventually get to that point. As much as I love doing it, yeah. I just kind of felt like it was exhausting. And every week, Wednesday night at seven o'clock, I was so stressed out. Like right. five minutes before the show, nothing's ready. The guests haven't shown up. Audio's not working. The camera's not doing it. The Nintendo servers just went down. We can't, yep. you know, all of this stuff. And it was like every week, I just didn't need the aggravation. And 
I have a day job as well. Right. And I wasn't doing that. like, <laughs> we, we were originally doing three shows a week, which was ridiculous. And even when, even when we went to like a weekly format, yeah. by the t- again, there's no one else around doing it for me. I said earlier, like when Jimmy Fallon says, let's play a clip, someone else does that for him through the rest of the week working on the show when the show's not actually on the air, but they're making it behind the scenes, booking guests and yep. clearing music and stuff like that. Jimmy's got a whole staff, right? He's probably playing golf <laughs> or taking one, one, like one creative meeting a day. Oh yeah, sure. You know, like great. Yeah. Let's have Daniel Craig on. That sounds good. Then he fucks off to the golf course. I would imagine that's what I would do, but right. I never got to do that because I was the, I was talking to every booker and, and the whole business of like clearing music for like to get Selena, to believe me, to get Selena Gomez's music, on YouTube without getting a copyright Nightmare. claim, yeah. even with Selena Gomez saying herself performing it there. Nope, like you still matter. have yeah. to go through a barrage of like, you know, property lawyers and clearance people to make yep. sure that my channel doesn't get to, I mean, that actually happened. Like when Selena's episode went up, we did all the clearances, oh. but there was like one label that hadn't signed off and the, and the episode got taken down and Selena's people had to like, you know, go check a bunch of boxes to get YouTube to put the episode back up and it just the time that i was doing the show like the hour on hour or two that i was doing every wednesday night or whenever it was that was always really fun and we would come off the show at the end of the day like feeling really buzzed and we never had a bad that was the amazing thing we never had a bad show we never had a bad guest everyone just loved it yeah and we and, and that was also kind of reason why i stopped doing because i just want to quit while i'm ahead right like, i feel like the next episode is the one that's going to like be really awkward that almost had when we had gorilla we had damon Albarn on who was like came on and I got the impression like like I think he was into it but like he's also like a very I don't know he wasn't the easiest person in the world to interview but like right. I, just, I just didn't want to take the risk anymore that sooner or later we're gonna have someone on who just ends up being an awkward guest and it was all done live so there was no way to kind of cover up for this stuff so I quit while I was ahead and because it became too stressful but I'm really glad that I did it and people still ask me but I'm still talking about it now it was it was really really fun if you ever want to go check it out all the episodes are on my YouTube channel it was it, it, yeah, it was it, it was just fun to kind of flex a whole bunch of different creative muscles. I usually sit around thinking about, you know, story all day, yeah. but to kind of have to develop the skills to become a talk show host and the technical know-how to figure out how to get the show up on its feet and build a, a talk show set inside a video game and all the issues with camera control and streaming and audio and just there, there was so many, it was so interesting to have to kind of, you know, flex a lot of muscles that usually... I would never use. Or develop and, even, right? Yeah, like exactly, exactly. As I, I, I've never done needed. this before, yeah. but it's interesting to learn something new. And it was, yeah, it was just, it, it was really, really fun. But man, it was a lot of work. If it, had it been my full-time job, I'd probably still be doing it now. I just, it became unsustainable to have a full-time job. It took me about 10 or 15 hours a week to do each show in terms of prep. And I just, I don't have, I don't have that much spare time. So something had to give and we stopped, we eventually stopped doing it. I mean, you can, you can, I mean, you will know better than I do, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like a lot of the reason it was so well received and it was so, I don't know, people were willing to come on and stuff is because you have a full-time job. And this was not you being like, I am going to capitalize on this. I am going to like do something that no one's ever done for the sake of monetizing, right? I feel like it was like, no, this is a really fun experiment. We're hanging out with friends, but I think in the hands of someone else, like this could have been a very commercialized thing you know i not to shade it but like remember some good news over the summer oh yeah yeah and, and we, I we got com- we got compared great. to that a couple of times because another thing is like krasinski saying well what else am i going to do and he came up with something yeah and it took off it was super fun and sweet but then you know eventually i think he sold the rights to her or something like that but he just I, I think he also ended it at a smart time like as you did but 
I think the idea that both of you, this is not your be all end all and that the the stakes for you, if it doesn't succeed are like, okay, whatever. I'm just going to go back to doing yeah, what I do. And again, it really was just about keeping the creative juices flowing even when, again, for me, it, it, it actually wasn't even really an imperative for me because I sit at home and write, you know, the, the pandemic conditions don't really change my ability right. to sit behind a, a desk and, and type at a keyboard. But again, for people that are more performative, for actors and comedians, things like that, who suddenly couldn't go on stage, and I think a lot of them really kind of crave that outlet, They for, for them, Twitch and to a lesser extent YouTube and some of the other social media platforms became a lifeline for them. Right. And again, they got to develop, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting to perform live in that, in that context. And again, I, I've really enjoyed doing it and, you know, it, it brought a lot of people to my channel and... I'm, I'm experimenting now with like, what's, what's the next thing? We did a couple of different talk show format ideas that came out of it. And animal talking brought a lot of, you know, followers to the channel who are still here today. And yeah. I want net, net, now it's like the, the other reason why I stopped doing it is I get, I have a really, really short attention span <laughs> and I get bored of things quickly. Sure. Like the next exciting thing for me is not ep episode number 26 of animal talking. It's episode number one of something else, which, you know, is the next hopefully cool idea. Right. So, you know, I, I, I'm not really, I, I don't have an, I don't have enough of an attention span to kind of, to carry. And I like the, 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 the bloom kind of comes off the rose very quickly for me. Mm -hmm. And especially with something like animal talking where, where it, it did become so stressful. It was like, you know what, this just isn't worth it anymore. And the novelty of having big guests and things like that stuff that kind of sustained me through all the, through all the hardships of putting it on. Once that novelty worn off, it was just kind of like, you, you wake up one morning, like, I just don't want to do the show this week. Yeah. And so fortunately I didn't, that's the nice thing about creating and owning your own content. I can, I just get to decide, you know what, we're not doing it anymore. I don't have to worry about not answerable to anybody. And that's also just been a big facet of how I kind of changed my whole approach to work is, you know, working as a screenwriter in Hollywood, you know, everything that I do basically is basically at the mercy of the permission of other people. Like, you right. know, I can write a movie script, but unless someone's going to you know put $50 million on the table to make it, I can't, I, I can't make it. And so you're constantly just asking people permission to make, you know, to, for them to make the thing that you want to make. Right. But what I loved about animal talking and what I love about, you know, so I've, I've self-published books and things like that. And especially now in the age of the internet where, you know, I'm very fortunate to have a fairly large social media footprint. Plenty of people follow me on Twitter and Twitch and YouTube. I can bring an idea directly to an audience now and not have to ask anyone's permission. I don't have to worry about, you know, the stuff that I, the, and the way in which like, animal talking costs nothing to make. Right. Like zero. I don't think I spent a single penny on it. Well, maybe a little bit to license some theme music. But but aside from that, it was just the stuff that I had sitting here on the desk already and the $60 that I'd already spent on a copy of Animal Crossing. Right. And like 20 bucks for Nintendo online. <laughs> yeah. And, it's, and, 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 what I, and what I do is, again, so often dependent on like, you know, I'd spent half my life like waiting for the notes to come back on the new thing. Right. I've written. Like, what does someone else think about what I've done? Will they let, will they allow us to proceed to the next stage and i have almost no agency as a writer in in hollywood because i i have no authority to do anything i'm constantly waiting on you know someone else to give me the nod to proceed to the next stage and so to be able to 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 go to youtube or twitch or whatever platform that get, gets me directly in front of an audience for better or worse i don't have to be answerable to anybody and so it's not like i had to go pitch animal talking to a bunch of networks well i, I just went and did it and once, and that was really the most revelatory thing. Is, wow, you really can make something and bring it straight to an audience. This is not new. This is not news to 
you know, the YouTube generation where there's already been like a whole generation of YouTubers have done exactly this. They've just gone yeah. straight to market and have become bigger than a lot of television personalities just straight through their YouTube channel. So that, you know, brushing aside the gatekeepers or going around them, going straight to an audience is not a new concept in general. But for someone like me who creates more kind of narrative or fictional type content, finding ways to tell stories and, and bring ideas to an audience that doesn't involve you know, having to, you know, having to ask someone, is this okay? Do you like it? What do you want me to change about it? Please really give me some money. It's been kind of revelatory to me to realize that that is an option. And again, I, I get to make all the creative decisions. I get to do anything. You know, I get, I, I kind of like the idea that if you like something about animal, if you like something about rogue one, for example, you didn't like it. Um, there's a good chance that I would take the credit or the blame for it because maybe it's something I contributed, mm -hmm. but there's a good chance that it was someone else's, you know, credit. I remember like the rogue one people often said to me, Oh, I really like, you know, uh, Bodie. He's a cool character. I said, well, that's great, but you should tell that to Chris White's who created Bodie. Cause that was nothing to do with me. Right. And you know, there's, we all, you know, contributed our own pieces. It's collaboration. To it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big club. And, and, and don't get me wrong. For, I for love better that. Or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. But there's, but there's also something nice about something being just solely you. Yeah. And again, for better or worse, if there's something about one of the things that I solely created that you like or dislike, I'm I'm happy to take all the credit or all the blame for it. So that's that's nice. Well, I think it's also nice that if you are no longer interested, you can walk away, right? Like once a script is out of your hands, it's you know, yes, it's gonna be made, yes, you might not be as involved in it, et cetera, but like it's going to get seen through more likely than not. Whereas like animal, you know, you you they might be like, hey, we need you for this, we need you for this, as opposed to animal talking, you're like, you know, it has run its course. I'm good. Let's go on to like I think what was it like Among Us was next. For you? Yeah, we did. So and again, I, I'm I and I've moved on to like burned through like, like six other little fads yeah. since then, and it's always it's always you're always looking at the horizon for the for the next thing. But yeah, the, the, the it's it's like you say that that ability to kind of be like master of your own universe and to have yeah. agency, especially in a business where I've been you know writers are really conditioned to not have very much agency at all in Hollywood you are often like at the bottom of the creative totem pole and the only or the only ability you have to influence the, the creative outcome of a project lies in your power to persuade the people who actually do make the decisions that the, the way that, the, the way you want to do it is the right one if I can persuade a director or a producer that you know a movie should end a certain way or should or shouldn't have this character or that scene I, I have to, I have to make that argument. I, I, I never get to be the one that says, you know what, I'm making, a, I'm making a call right now. We're doing it this way. Yeah. In film, I would never get to do that. Even directors don't really have that power anymore. Once you get to a certain level, the studios are really making those movies, and the director is increasingly just kind of a figurehead. When you get to these like mega, mega franchise films, you will hear about how right. these movies kind of get taken away from directors and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy to trade in the scale of it. I would much rather, for example, write something as a book and have full control over it than than realize kind of the big sexy like arguably sexier big movie version of it but in order to make that version it got compromised and turned into something and taken away from me in a way that i don't really recognize what's on the screen anymore i tell people this all the time if you want to get into writing movies really really ask yourself what it is that you why it is that you want to get into that line of work if, if it's mm. just that you want to that you were that kid from cinema parody so who kind of looked at the movie projected on the wall and the like the, 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 the like yeah you know that kind of that spielberg face that magic yeah, like of cinema you know, yeah like you know the, we've all seen that image of the kid you know in the in the theater with kind of the flickering projector behind him and they're just kind of enchanted but what they're yeah. seeing on the screen that was me when i was a kid 
And there are many people that grow up like that, you know, the magic of the movies. And if that's what you want, if the, if, if the darkened theater and the, you know, the, the flickering projection, all that, that if, if there's nothing else will satisfy you, by all means, write movies. If you just want to tell stories and have them find their way to an audience in a way that you recognize as what you intended it to be, yeah. write almost anything else. You know, write books or even television or, uh, you know, plays or poetry or comics yeah. or anything else, because film is by far the medium that will put up the greatest fight in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, thwart preventing you from realizing some kind of unalloyed, untampered with vision. When I, I remember when I wrote my first novel, it was it was incredible to get notes back from my editor and they would say, here are our notes. We think you should change this. We think you should do that. And I would say, what if I don't like this note? And they would say, well, just don't do it. Like you're the author. Yeah. Like this, these are just suggestions. Like that's a choice. Now, that's an in, now in Hollywood, those notes are presented you presented to you in 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 the, more the context of make this change, or we'll find someone who will. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like you you know, and again, I I could maybe convince them that not making that change or doing it in a different way is a better way. But again, all I have is that power to persuade. I don't ever actually have any kind of executive decision making power i don't have any authority the word authority right what's the mm -hmm. meaning of author that's where it comes from I don't, i'm not really the author of a movie i have no authority over the over the finished product but i am the author of a book and i do have authority over it i, I use this example all the time and people laugh at me because they think it's absurd but you know it's the reality imagine if stephen king like turned his new book into a publisher um and they said well we love the book we love the book stephen we're not crazy about the third act so we're going to bring in another author to rewrite it and you're done. Thank you. You know, we'll see you yeah. at, the, at the book launch. Again, you're laughing because it's, it's, it's laughable, right? And right. because that, that would be unheard of in almost any other, you know, literary or, you know, kind of creative fiction enterprise. Like the idea of a, the author of a book being, being replaced and rewritten. But in, in film, that's, right. it happens 20 all times time. a day. And yeah. all the time. And that is, you know, I've long since made my peace with that. And it is, it is, you know, just part of the equation. So, it, but as much as writing films in that collaborative way and always being, you know, worried about, am I, you know, is the next draft going to be the one that get me, gets me fired and replaced or whatever? Like, that's fine. I'm going to be doing that for 20 years. I've, I've gotten used to managing those feelings and those anxieties, but what, a, but what for all, for that, for all those reasons, what a thrill it is to go across the street and write a book or write a comic where again, for better or worse, no one can fire me. No one can, can force a change upon me. I would always get, with, with, my, with my book, these notes would always kind of fall into three categories in terms of how I'd respond to them. I'd be like, oh, I love, the, the, my, my editor would say, here's the issue that I have with this sentence or this paragraph or this story point or whatever. Mm -hmm. And here's my proposed fix. And I would either, either say one of three things. I love that and I love the fix. I'll implement it. Or mm -hmm. I think you're right about the note, but I, I, have, I have a different a way different to address fix. it. Yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me try that. Or I just don't agree with your note and I reject it utterly. And I just keep, I'm keeping it the way I like it, the way yeah. it is. Thanks and, for no thanks. <laughs> and, the, and the very, cause, but I honestly was because you get so conditioned. Like the first time I said that, I was like, I reject your note. And I kind of went like, oh wait, are you going to, don't <laughs> yeah. hit me. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and when, and when, and when my editor went, sure, again, you're the author. I was like, oh shit, I am. Yeah. And it was, and I've never had that feeling before. And so as much as I, it, it, it's really, really changed the way that I, I approach my creative projects. 90% of the work that I do these days, some of it's original work, but most of it is, you know, work playing in other people's sandboxes, whether mm -hmm. it's something as grand as Star Wars or, you know, so much of the work that comes through kind of the Hollywood system these days is, do you want to adapt this popular board game or this right. toy or remake this movie or TV show? And 
you know, none, none of it really kind of feels like it's, it's yours. It's just, you know, it's, it's a contract job. You know, you're, you're very yeah. aware that you're playing with someone else's material and sometimes, you know, Star Wars or whatever, you're privileged to do it, but you're very aware that it's kind of not yours and you're just kind of working for hire. I always prefer to kind of work on my own stuff, but the problem with originally so much of the oxygen in the room these days is taken up by Star Wars and Marvel and, and remakes and sequels and all this franchise based entertainment it's almost impossible unless you're like chris nolan or jj or someone like this right to get the kind of original sci-fi stuff that i like to write through the system and so i i discovered this a while ago like so the book that i was mentioning the book that i wrote back in 2015 called abomination which is a kind mm -hmm. of horror medieval thing um it's set in 10th century england and again i've been doing this long enough to know that i can anticipate exactly going into a room at Warner Brothers or Sony or Paramount or Disney or HBO or anywhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, they, they, you, you find the place. Okay. How's the bottle of water? You do all the yeah. stuff that you do. And then you say, right, what do you got for us? And I go, okay, here we go. It's 10th century England. And right away I can see the executive. <laughs> oh my God. I yeah. know this is a no, but I've got to sit through this. This is not commercial. They we take the bottled water away. They give yeah. you like tap they water instead. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't touched that, have you? And so, Knowing that, knowing that, you know, I could, I have an idea for a movie and years ago, what I would do is I would write it as a spec screenplay because that's what I knew how to do. And that was my business. What's heartbreaking about that though, again, especially in, in, in the current market where original material is so hard to kind of push up the chain, I could spend six months writing a, writing a, a 120 page screenplay, absolutely love it. And then it goes out to the town and in a week, everyone's passed on it and then, then it's dead and it's never right. going to get made. And it, you know, I, I basically spent six months writing a very personal story that maybe 10 people in the world read and now just sits on a shelf gathering dust. And what am I going to do? Publish the screenplay? Nobody wants to just read a screenplay. That's not interesting to most people other than students of, of screenwriting. And so what I, the way I now do it, and this kind of started with Abomination, was again, knowing that I had this idea for this kind of gnarly medieval horror story that just wasn't going to be commercial or likely to be made as a feature film, I realized I don't really care if it's made as a feature film. I just want to tell the story in some form or another. I just want just want my stories to find an audience. Yeah. And so I thought, well, let's try writing it as a novel. I've never done that. Again, let's develop another creative muscle. I ended up enjoying writing it. And getting that published as a book in the, you know, like I said before, what do you care about? Well, I care about my stories, finding an audience and the story being reflective of what I actually set out to do when I first sat down to write it, that book is that, you know, yeah. and, it, and it didn't, and it, it never got taken away from me or turned into something I didn't want it to be. And I'm very proud of that fact that that's something I can say here, this is like a little piece of me that I created and it's, you know, truly reflective of, you know, whatever my artistic creative intent was when I first started writing it. That's again, almost impossible to get in film. The book of Eli is that, but it's really kind of a miracle that it is that, you know, Denzel and the filmmakers were all kind of on the same creative page in terms of they all saw the same movie that I originally saw when I sat down to write it. And we got largely left alone by the studio. And so when I finally saw the movie and it was like 95% what I wanted it to be, like I cried because I remember thinking, oh shit, like this is a miracle. This doesn't happen in Hollywood. Yeah. But then there was this other voice saying, yeah, that's the one, that's the one you get. You played your Joker like right at the beginning of your career. This will never happen again. And it's true. It never has because all the other movies and things that I've worked on, you know, well, they all have my DNA in it. They all, they all, you know, got kind of pushed and pulled around and turned into, you know, a slightly different shape by, by the end of it. And Eli is the only one that's like, yeah, that's almost all me. Um, but I, but I know that the reality, the chances of that happening again in film, it's a big budget cinema 
are almost zero. So what I, all, all I really care about now is find, maybe if there's another way, another avenue that is le- that is more likely to kind of find to to allow that story to find daylight, to find yeah. its audience, whether it be a novel or a graphic novel, or you know, a, 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 it could be a podcast, you know, narrative mm-hmm. podcast that's really big right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do that. And so you know, if I can if I can get a book or a comic or a podcast or anything in front of an audience with minimal interference without asking anyone's permission on my own terms, then that is a win. And then the great, and then the nice gravy that comes along with that, this is not the intention. It's just a nice side effect is once you then create that, once you create the book or the novel or the podcast, guess what? It then becomes a piece of underlying IP. And yeah. do, Hey, we made this yeah. into a movie. I was like, where were you a year ago when this was a movie? I turned right. it into a podcast or a book. And now you want to make it a movie because again, Hollywood doesn't really have an, have an algorithm or a process for making original, you know, genre stuff beyond a certain budget level, unless it's when it's based on a piece of underlying material, Oh, it's based on a comic or whatever. They're able to do that math a little bit more easily in their heads. And so that's kind of become how, how I work now is like, I mostly make my money, you know, working on other people's stuff, you know, whether it's, you know, an adaptation or a remake or a mm-hmm. rewrite of this, that, or the other, but all of my, all, almost all of my original material, I've long since given up trying to push that directly through the Hollywood system rather than trying to go through all those gatekeepers. I'll just go around directly around them to the audience by creating it in another medium. And then again, the nice thing about this, once you've created it, it then becomes a more attractive prospect for, you know, for Hollywood to look at because it already exists. Right. It gets weirdly, I feel like legitimized by, its existence, which is so funny because you're like, you could have legitimized this to start. Like, I don't understand. You know, it's the same story. It's the same whatever. Like, And a lot of it is smoke and mirrors. Remember the movie Cowboys and Aliens? Yes, I do. I still so, have a poster for it. <laughs> so based on a comic, but based on the comic book was like their big thing. But yeah. it was never really even a legitimate comic book. They basically just went away and kind of spent a, mon- a bunch of money and brute forced publishing a comic. It was a comic book that appeared on shelves, but the whole... It was never meant to be a comic book in its own right. It really was just meant to be a glossy brochure for the film they wanted to make. Right. And so they got it on comic shelves and it was a comic that was published, but it was never meant to just be published as a comic. The, the, the end game all along was, can we get this made into a movie? And they recognized that, that, that realizing it as a comic book first would get, would, would kind of shortcut them a little bit. to And it worked. I mean, the movie didn't work, but they, they got it made got in it a made. way that had. They got and James you, Bond in it. <laughs> You see, you got, see this Harrison order. Ford, didn't they? That was a the, that. exactly, and Darren, Daniel Craig, and all these people. Yeah. and you've long since forgotten about it. Um, but like, I, I see this all the time. Like, a great example for me is The Hunger Games. Um, I was, I, remember, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, so I remember, I, I remember when the, I never read the books, but when the movie came out, I thought, well, this is a big hit movie. I, I should go watch it to understand like what it's all about. And yeah, it's obviously a very interesting, very strange film, but hugely successful. But the one thing that it's funny once you work in Hollywood, like you can't you can't just watch movies on their own terms anymore. It's like no. you see you you see you see the movie, but you also see the movie behind the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, it's like I don't see the Matrix anymore. I just see blonde, brunette, redhead, whatever. It's like you know, <laughs> it's like you see the code. It's yeah, like yeah. every creative decision in a movie. Anyone who's been working in film for a long time will be like, I see, I see exactly where the studio note was there. Mm-hmm. Like if it seemed like the character was like saying something that seemed a bit obvious, it's because the because the studio said make sure that they it. say yeah. it in a way yeah. that everyone gets it, and so that you know you can you can see that see the creative process all the time. And in a more macro sense, what I thought was really interesting about the Hunger Games was you know looking at here's like a really grim dystopian world. It's very depressing in many ways. It's very brutal and violent, uh, and it's very odd. 
you know, it, it, it culminates with 30 minutes of children murdering each other. Right. And, you know, she's all good she stories. No. riding around a chariot and a golden, in you know, a flaming dress. And here's this guy with ridiculous blue hair. And the conclusion that I came to, and it's a fairly obvious one, really, is that if, if, if Suzanne Collins had written that as a, as a spec screenplay, mm-hmm. I guarantee you, you've never heard of The Hunger Games. But because she wrote it as a book mm-hmm. and it sold millions of copies, they made the movie. Yep. And and so that that was really instructive for me in terms of like if I would ever have a Hunger Games type idea, I know enough about this business and I know enough about my own stature in this. I'm not Chris Nolan. I'm not JJ. Even they would struggle to get something like that made as a piece of original material because there's so many strikes against it creatively. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll again. I'll, I'll go around. Just go around. Just, just just instead of trying to find a way to kind of get through yeah, the you, problem, you just just avoid it entirely. And so I, most of the original material that I'm working on these days, it, if I'm developing something as a feature film, it's probably a lower budget thing where it's easy to imagine it getting made. Because mm-hmm. you know, the, the higher the budget, the more risk averse and the more questions they ask before right. they'll- The more notes yeah. you're going to get. And this, and this is why so much you know, entertainment at the top of the you know, kind of budgetary food chain seems really homogenized because they won't spend $100 million on something that's never been tried or might be considered experimental or risky. They'll only do it if it's following the template of a pattern or a pattern of something that's already proved, been proven to be a success, which is why so many movies seem the same these days. A, a lower, again, that's why all, all the experimentation and all the really weird kooky stuff is like at the lower end of the budget spectrum because when you're, mm-hmm. when you're asking people to risk less of their money, They'll allow you to take more creative risk. So if I'm doing something that's like under $10 million or whatever, I might write like a kooky little thing and think maybe we can get this through the system. But a lot of the stuff that I write because it's genre tends to be more expensive to realize. Right. And the idea of writing that kind of going route one as a spec screenplay and trying to get that made directly as a movie, I've long since given up on that. I think what I, I worked a few years ago on uh, a Mark Miller comic mm-hmm. book adaptation. And I got to spend some time with Mark. And Mark's a genius. He's got this big deal at Netflix now. And he figured this out a long time ago that he just, he, it wasn't even about getting movies made, but like he's a creative engineer. He has all these creative, whether it's Kick-Ass or Kingsman Secret Service or uh, Jupiter's Legacy or whatever. He just, he has all these great ideas. He writes them as comic books, which is his, you know, native Forte, language. Yep, yep. He gets to tell the story on his own terms. It gets in front of an audience. And again, that's it. That's the end game for him. I told my story in my native language. It found an audience. People liked it. I'm done. But then all the gravy on top of that is, you know, everyone now comes along and wants to make his comics into movies as well. So he gets he get, he gets to have the fun of seeing it realized, you know, on an arguably grander level. You know, big stars, Colin, look, here's Colin Firth. Here's, you know, this uh, big movie actor over here. And they're all coming to this. Nick Cage is playing this character now. And that's yeah. all a lot of fun. But again, I guarantee you, most of Mark's ideas, brilliant as they are, if he had tried writing them as spec screenplays first, even with his name behind him, probably would have struggled to get any of those made. So the way that he's doing it is way, way smarter. Again, just get it in front of an audience in a way that you know, puts up as less um, kind of creative and logistical friction as possible. Way easier to publish a book or a comic book than it is to make a big budget movie. So that's done. And then that, and then that creates a platform to, for it to go on. I'm not going to say better things because I don't necessarily think a movie version of something is better or more desirable than a book or a comic book. It's just different. Mm-hmm. But, it get, but, it, but it gives you a better shot of like having – if you ever want to see, if you ever have a dream of seeing it on a screen, I, again, I no longer think about getting it directly there. So establish it in another medium first. And then if it, pro- if it proves its worth, if it's successful commercially, if people like it, then, you know, again, if you build it, they will come. Like eventually right. someone will come sniff and say, hey, are the rights to this available? 
I, I do wonder like how many people out there now are entering, you know, writing for the first time or whatever, and are thinking about their stories in terms of like, what's the adaptability here, as opposed to focusing on telling a great story in whatever medium they're in. Like, it kind of worries me a little bit sometimes, right? Where you're just like, my end goal with this is actually to get it adapted. It's like, well, shouldn't your end goal be like a great story and telling like the best possible story you can be in a comic book or a book or a novel, whatever it is. Yeah. And again, that's, that's, that's why I never think about it in terms of, well, if I do it as a book, yeah. it's going to be and that you, much but you've easier had the to get experience made as a movie. I really, I really try. I mean, that's always an attractive prospect, right? but I, I really, really try to kind of, to, to kind of manage my expectations something and say, look, I just want to get this published or created in the medium that it was originally created for. And if it finds an audience and they're satisfied with it and I got it out there and it's another thing on a shelf or, you know, with my name on it, then that's, that's, that's a, that's a win for me. That's, that's all I can um, hope to do. Cause so much of this business is characterized by failure and people don't recognize just how much stuff work gets put into things that you never yeah, Ever see. Like I often talk about failure in this business, right? I mean, like it's a shame. <laughs> I often, I often think about it like an iceberg, where like you know, the small part of the iceberg that kind of breaks the surface of the water and, and is visible. Like yeah. that's the success that I've had. Those are the whatever. If you've seen my films or my books or TV shows or comics or whatever, though, that's that, that means that it's broken the surface of the water and is visible, right? It's mm -hmm. above the waterline and you've seen it. What you don't see and what you'll never see is the vast majority of the iceberg that lurks beneath the surface and is like seven eighths of it at least. And that's all of the stuff that I've written and put my heart and soul into, but never saw the light of day and right. will always be doomed to kind of lurk in the dark waters beneath the surface. I've been doing this for 20 years. I've had three movies made and I'm considered successful, right? But that's a real, you know, I've written probably more than a hundred. So my bands are like the 3% success rate getting movies to the screen. That's really, really low. So, you know, you better be able to sustain yourself through kind of low, you know, I, I, I make good money, you know, as a screenwriter and, and in this business, but like the real win is again, just getting something surfaced right. and in front of an audience. And though, and that is, no matter how prolific you might be, that is often very, very rare. And so those moments when I'm standing on a red carpet or at like the launch of a book or something that I've created, I really try to kind of like, you know, I find those moments really satisfying. And I try to draw, like, to, to kind of like appreciate and remember and suck up every every part of that moment because it might be really, really a long time before I get another one of those. I'm yeah. going back to I'm going back to the mines, you know, to kind of try and write the next thing. Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 a it's a low percentage business, uh, but I have kind of drastically kind of altered the way that I create stories in a way that hopefully just kind of like shifts the odds in my favor a little bit of the stories actually getting realized in, in whatever medium. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, I think the people I'm referring to more are like, I, I, I don't know, maybe it's just a shift, like the generation right after me where there's just such a culture of like instant gratification or like we glorify stories of like, Oh, overnight success, overnight, whatever. And we don't talk about the iceberg, right? We don't talk about whatever there's like, you know, you become a viral sensation and people don't think about all the work that goes into these things. Yeah, <laughs> like, I the mean, odds we, are not we, in I mean, your we, we all know that the overnight success thing is kind of a misnomer. We see that all the time is, you know, when I, when I, when I first kind of broke into the business, like the book of Eli was the first screenplay of mine that most people heard about, but it was probably like the 20th one that I wrote. And I had right. been working in the business for like seven years at that point, but, but before, you know, that, that got picked up. So yeah, the, the, you know, it's, it's kind of a, the, I think the, 
I think most people that work in the creative business know that the idea of an overnight success is you, I mean, you can become successful overnight, sure. but there's no, but you, you didn't, you didn't go from zero to that overnight. Yeah. Like there's no, that moment where you break through is often really, really hard one off the back of years of failure and rejection. And there is, there is kind of a, a kind of a Darwinism at play mm-hmm. with this kind of stuff. As I, I often say to people, like there's only one characteristic or quality I can think of, of all the, of all the successful writers that I know, they're all very different in their approach and their style and their creative sensibilities. No two writers like write something in the exact same way. But the one thing that defines all of them is that none of them ever quit. None of them ever gave up when they, I guarantee you they all had plenty of opportunities to do so. And I yeah. think there is a bit of a Dar- bit of Darwinism at play where this kind of sounds like a grim fatalistic thing to say, but if you get to the point where you just can't do it anymore and you, and you quit and you give up and you walk away and go back to your day job, you probably were, you probably were one of the people that was supposed to do that. Like not everyone is cut out to be successful. And there is that, you know, if you've got, right, and the that's okay. To, yeah. <laughs> Cause here's the thing, break, breaking through and becoming, this is what most people don't recognize. They think that once they break through and sell a screenplay and get a movie made or whatever, they've cracked it and they're on easy street. No, this is where that's actually now when you advance to the next difficulty level, like most of, yeah. most of the failure and rejection that you'll have that I've had in my life came after my quote unquote overnight success. And so, you know, you're just buying, you, you know, you, you've got to have a very, very thick emotional skin to survive mm-hmm. in this business. I, and I often don't, I struggle, I've thrown my phone across the room and I've had my wife come into the room cause she's heard me shouting at someone over the phone from like half a house away. Yeah. Like, Are you okay? Well, she knows exactly what's going on. Cause she's, I, I very rarely get like that, but it does happen when, I, when, when the yeah. rug really gets pulled out from under you in a, in a, in a really, uh, um, you know, agonizing way. Because the only, the only, the the thing that attracts us to this work in the first place, and the only way I think to be good at it, is if you care about the work. If you care, like you can't just be a hacker like kind of phones it in. If you do that, the work's never going to be right. that great. Like you have to really kind of care and love, you know, the stuff that you do and be passionate about it and be willing to fight and die for it. And so you do kind of become very emotionally linked to your work. And so when mm-hmm. that gets taken, like for let's say that gets taken away from a movie that you worked on for two years gets canceled or you get fired and replaced or whatever, it's emotionally devastating. And you actually do go through some of the same emotions that you go through. Like when you it's go great. through like it's a romantic trauma, breakup, like... like when you get dumped, like it's, it's traumatic yeah. and it's, it's agonizing. And you, you think about it for a long time. Like, what did I do wrong? Could I have done something different? Like it's all, all of those things that you ask yourself, like it's, it's a very similar thing. And there have been, there've been, I think this, twice I've come this close to quitting the business when I was so disappointed with the way that something panned out. And I'm I, I, obviously the only reason I didn't is because I'm literally not qualified to do anything else. Like if it's, it's this or nothing. So I can't go, I, it's not like I can't go back to doing like my, I never had a day job. It was, it's only ever been this. Uh, so un, unemployable in any other field, but it is that kind of thing. Like I think as creatives, we're all incurable romantics, right? And we sign up for, you know, for every time you fall in love with a piece of material, Again, it's very similar. Like you fall in love with a person and you know there's a good chance you might get your heart broken, but you do it anyway because you want to believe yeah. that this is the time that that won't happen. So even even on the occasion, I said, I'm done. I'm done with Hollywood. I'm not doing it anymore. I can't keep subjecting myself to this kind of emotional abuse. Three weeks later, I'm back. Exactly. I'm writing the next movie because, again, you just, you just can't help yourself. You can't stay away. So it's emotionally very... Um, there's a, there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into creative work. Cause I'm, as I'm, I'm sure, you know, anyone in creative fields knows that because yeah. you, the only way to do it is to care. And every time you care about something emotionally, you put yourself at risk emotionally to, you know, being heartbroken. 
Yeah. I mean, otherwise you're phoning it in and what's the point to me at least. Yeah. I think there's just like a tiny bit of masochism involved in any creative, right? Cause you're just like, I know if I want to do this, it will be painful. I'm, I'm sure somewhere out there, there's someone who's had easy breezy coasting, whatever, but I've yet to meet them. And I've talked to a lot of people over the years. And it is, at the end of the day, it is all worth it. You know, I, I get a lot, a lot of people who say, like, I feel like I'm a bit of, when I do these kind of interviews, I often, I talk about these kind of things and people think I'm a bit of a downer. I just think I'm no, a pragmatist for 20 yeah. years. Yeah. I just know what the lay of the land looks like and I know what the risks are and I know how much disappointment and rejection there is. And you've got, you, you've got to go into it with your eyes open, knowing that you're going to get, you're going to take a beating, you know, emotionally, psychically, you just are. But we, but I, I, if it wasn't worth it, I would have quit a long time ago. I'm still right. here after, after taking all kinds of, you know, bruisings over the last 20 years, I'm still here doing it. You remember I said earlier, like with animal talking, if the, if it ever becomes more heartache than it, that if it brings me more stress than it does joy, I'll quit. That's true of anything in my life. And you know, yeah. that fortunately, like the, for my day job, that equation, although it's, it's flirted with it from time to time, like I said, I've considered quitting a couple of times, it's never that equation's never really fallen out of balance because that love that I've had for movies and sci-fi and creativity and the world of kind of imagination and wonder. I, I really do believe that, you know, what we do for a living in this business, when, you know, when, when I say this business, I just mean like the whole business of like creative storytelling, whether it be yeah. film, you know, comic books, um, you know, Novels, literature, whatever, cetera, yeah. uh, video games, you know, you, you name it is it's the closest, but I think it's particularly true in Hollywood. It's the closest thing in the world that exists to actual magic. You know, like when you go, when you go to a movie, when I, when I take my kid to the movies, oftentimes we'll go more than once, uh, you know, cause she loves, you know, she'll get kids will watch a movie they love yeah, over and over repeat, and over. Yeah. I, went, I think we think we went to Moana like four or five times. <laughs> now the first time we go to Moana, I watch the movie with her. The second time we go, I watch her watch the movie and I kind of, I'm mm. looking, I'm kind of looking, I'm looking over at her face and it is that it's that cinema parody. So face that like, She's just like, it's magic. It's so wonderful for her. She's been transported to this other place. And it's like, it's that. That's yeah. the feeling that we all want to create for other people. And when you're able to kind of create that magic and the five years I worked at Lucasfilm, I remember like I had these moments all the time, just remembering, oh shit, like what we do here has real power, you know, like kind of creating these modern myths and 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 telling stories that are going to, you know, inspire the next generation of of, of creative people. It was, it was like that for me. I would see return of the Jedi. There was like a moment in the third act thinking, whatever this movie is making me feel right now, like this sense of like awe and wonder and magic. Like I want, I want to make that for other people. Yeah. Um, and each, and each generation of us, you know, inspires uh, the next one. So, you know, you as long as you never lose sight of that, then, you know, even, even in my, my darkest moments where I'm like really frustrated and I just don't want to get out of bed and write my pages today and I'm banging my head against the wall and, I mean, creative disagreements with people and all of the bad stuff of which, you know, there is plenty from day to day. It's never quite outweighed that the childlike part of it. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, this is all worth it. You know, yeah. you, you, you reach, you reach the peak of the mountain very, very rarely, but when you do get there, it's such a euphoric feeling that it really does kind of sustain you for the journey up the next mountain. Right. And also no one can ever take it away from you. You know, uh, yeah. you did it, you got up the mountain. Yeah, Absolutely. It's so funny to me just because I feel like something that is maybe not your escape, but the, you know, the, the streaming, the the Twitch stuff, like all that stuff, your success in that is something that people who are in that field would aspire to, right? Like you not only have your own mountains that you've summited <laughs> in your day job, but also like 
you're a successful Twitch streamer. Like there are well, people who that's their mountain. To, to some extent. I mean, it's not like I have huge, if I play a video game on Twitch, just like anyone else, I might be like no, no, yeah. a couple of hundred people watching me. It's not like massive or anything. Animal talking was really big, but that's come and gone. It remains to be seen whether or not the next quote unquote big thing that I do on Twitch and I'm trying to do something before the end of the year that I think might be really interesting would attract anything like the same appeal. Yeah. It could just be that animal talking was, was a one hit wonder, but yeah, like I said, it was really the success of it. Even if, even if there never, you know, no more than a few hundred people had watched it, I honestly would have gotten the same amount of satisfaction out of it. The, the feeling of like, Oh, this is really big. Now we have big celebrities coming on and tens of thousands of people watching. That was a whole other that didn't that that didn't that wasn't like a better version of the feeling I was already having. That was like oh no yeah yeah thing. like just the feeling of, oh we made something really cool here and we're putting on a show for people and we made this all out of a kind of you know virtual shoebox basically and we created something kind of delightful out of nothing that honestly peaked before we had any of the big stars on and, and the celebrities were just kind of like that would that was delightful in a, in a in another way but I honestly don't think I would have enjoyed it any less even if we had never had like the big celebrities coming on. Yeah. I just mean that like your sort of escape and you're, you're also like this two way street of being able to talk to your Twitch audience and stuff like that. You know, that sees relative success. Right. And it's just, it's funny to me that, yeah. And it's plenty of people who would kill for that. (laughs) And it really is a social outlet. It's, you know, I, I'm not an unsociable person. I I don't particularly like going out. So again, like the pandemic didn't really kind of stifle my, so, you know, I've, I've got a kid, I'm a homebody, you know, I, I, when I go out, it's usually to the, like, go to the war, go to Walgreens, like, is an exciting trip out for me yeah. these days. I haven't really done much in the social sphere, and no one has, you know, for a really long time. But again, because when it was taken away from me, I really felt like, you know, I needed, there, there was a gap, I, need, I needed to, to have the choice to be sociable, yeah. even if I couldn't leave the house anymore. And so, you know, even before the pandemic, I'm very active on social media, because that's an outlet for me, it helps me feel connected to the world. And, you know, usually I, I can sit, I sit in a quiet office all day just working and I have no idea what's going on in the world until, you know, I'm, I'm done at the end of the day. And I realize, oh, yeah, there's like a whole bunch of shit happened today out in the world. I just never saw any of it because I was in my little my little bubble. Yeah. Um, so social media, you know, helps me feel like I'm part of some kind of social ecosystem and particularly during the pandemic Twitch, which is that kind of much more kind of real time feedback, you know, doing when we were doing something um in animal talking like well, we like we had our first musical performance or whatever and you could see the twitch chat people go holy shit this is amazing yeah it's like you you get that kind of real-time feedback of like it's so nice to see people enjoying what you did because again a lot of it is invisible to you when a book is published when a movie comes out it's not like you get to sit in every auditorium or right you know look over the shoulder of everyone who's reading your book like and the feedback kind of comes in in dribs and drabs the nice thing about for example being like a stand-up comedian is, you know, you get that, you know, when someone, when someone laughs at a joke that you tell on stage, like that's really powerful. Right. And that becomes almost like a drug, like that's, you know, you want to get back on, on stage, right. I was talking about karaoke, like you get that instant feedback yeah. and, you know, being a talk show host was kind of akin to that. We really were kind of doing live stand up comedy every week. And when we did something that worked and we would get instant reaction through the Twitch chat, again, it's like this kind of feedback loop that becomes self-sustaining. It's like, oh, they laughed at the last joke. I can't wait to do the next one. Right. And again, that's that you're closer to the metal in terms of, you know, audience satisfaction and feedback and the kind of things that we all, because we all desperately crave kind of validation and a pat yep. on the head and being told that people are enjoying the work that we do. Uh, but, that, that, but that's often communicated to us through a remove, like a review of a movie or a review of a book, or someone sends me a nice note saying, oh, I read your book and I liked it or whatever. But there's something about that 
again, like being a stand-up comic or being a rock star or being kind of more, again, directly connected to your audience and getting that immediate, you know, musicians and comedians talk about this all the time, like feeding off the energy of the audience. Mm -hmm. And, and that goes both ways, right? If you're, if you're bombing, it's only gonna, it's gonna kind of hard to like that can pull you down. But when people, when you get your first laugh or it's like, Oh, they laughed at that. And you get that little kind of endorphin hit that adrenaline hit. And that, that was something that I, I didn't realize was even happening during um animal talking until like after the show when i realized that i was actually like my brain was still going at 100 miles an hour because i was like on this kind of adrenaline endorphin rush or whatever like coming like a high from like coming off stage um and it sounds silly because i'm sitting here i'm not really on a stage i'm sitting here but it's a virtual stage and the audience is as real as any other and you know we've got 50 when you think about it we had 50 60 70 000 people watching the selena gomez show that's an arena that's, that's an arena of crowd yeah. of people that's, that's a, a stadium full that's of a people. Sting live crowd <laughs> yeah and so you know you, you often don't kind of grok that like in the moment and you have to kind of like think about it afterwards but a lot of people really uh, really watched and enjoyed that and so that, that's what you want to it, it's all you want to do is like put a smile on people's faces and 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 see that you've done that because that that comes back to i, I got a note the other day from someone who just who said that they enjoyed something that I wrote and was meaningful to them. And like, I, I always write back because again, that is the kind of stuff that keeps us afloat. Just like, you yeah. know, I talk about like being on a red carpet or something that's very flashy and rare and, but, and, but it's not, it sustains you for the next thing. But even just, even just getting like a nice note from someone saying, I got, I got, I got a, I got a note just this week from like someone who goes on my Twitch channel saying, Hey, I want you to know that those animal talking shows really helped me get through the pandemic and put a smile oh, on wow. my face during a very, you know, miserable time in my life. And it's like, and again, that is like, I'll keep that email and yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll read that like a year from now. And just remember, this is why we do this. Again, it's not always immediately apparent to you, but like, you know, the stuff that we, that we do has real value to people. Even, even if it's something as stupid as a video game, talk show you know where we're silly little cartoon characters and animals and stuff like that it it, it you know if it, if it brings even the smallest amount of joy into someone's life at a time when they need it that is the kind of stuff that keeps keeps me you know getting out of bed in the morning yeah i mean man thank you so much i also feel bad we went way over time oh no that's fine do you have anything you want to plug in addition to your channels um not right this minute but i but i will i might actually want to i I might i might uh ask you to come back on your podcast closer to the end of the year when i do actually have a major new twitch project that i'm going to be finishing it up right now and at some point i'm going to want to promote it and maybe i'll come back and and talk about it in more detail but it's 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 going to be a lot of fun and uh i'm gonna be i'm gonna be calling in all the favors in terms of like i need again one of the other things about working on stuff on your own terms and creating your own is like there's no studio or anyone to market it for you like i'm gonna be fully responsible for beating the drum on whatever the new project is and so being able to come on shows like this and say hey come check this out is again that's a valuable uh thing for me so i will check in with you a little bit um closer to the end of the year and i'll come back honored to have you back oh thanks That has been it for this episode. Thank you so, so much to Gary for joining and to you for listening. You can find links to where to find Gary in the episode description. And if you liked this episode, we would love it if you could leave us a rating or a review or even consider subscribing.